0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the season premiere of Plucking Up. I cannot believe we are finally here. First off, for those of you who don't know me, allow me to introduce myself. I am Liz Bohannon. I am the CEO of a socially conscious fashion brand called Seiko Designs. And as of just this past month, also of a fair trade small batch roasted coffee brand called Together Coffee. I am married to my co-founder and co-CEO, Ben. I live in Portland, Oregon on what some might refer to as a bit of an urban commune. I am the mom of two small boys. I'm a professional public speaker and the author of the best-selling book, Beginner's Pluck. And now, I guess I'm officially a podcaster. So there you go. That is my highlight reel. You're used to hearing people's highlight reels by now, right? Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with the highlight reel, right? It's helpful. It's quick. It's important. But what's even more important is that we understand that the highlight reel is never, ever the full story. I wrote this book called Beginner's Pluck in part to share some of the behind the scenes real life moments of my journey of building this company and a life of purpose and passion and impact. And I deeply believe that one of the key ingredients is pluck. If you don't know what pluck means, the dictionary defines pluck as a spirited and determined courage. But here's the thing. Anyone who has pluck, who has the spirited and determined courage that eventually leads them to success has also had some serious pluck-ups along the way. Pluck-ups are, you know, mistakes, wrong turns, those moments in time where you lay in bed that night and you're like, your face is just burning hot red and you're embarrassed and your heart is racing and you're thinking about the thing that you said or that you didn't say or that you did wrong and you're just like, yep, I really plucked that one up. As a culture, we're definitely getting better kind of on a meta level about talking about failure and how it's necessary and normal, but we still don't have a lot of great stories and narratives that go past that highlight reel and help us fully understand how we can build lives of purpose and passion and impact. And on this podcast, we are hoping to change that. On our first ever episode, I am so excited to have the iconic author, Elizabeth Gilbert, who's behind the number one New York Times best-selling book, Eat, Pray, Love. You guys, this book sold over 12 million copies and was adapted into a film starring the one and only Julia Roberts in 2010. Elizabeth, who also goes by Liz, grew up on a small family Christmas tree farm in Waterbury, Connecticut. Not sure why I said that with an English accent. Uh, and she eventually moved to New York. During her early days, she worked as a journalist for publications like GQ and New York Times Magazine, but she was also a waitress and a bartender. Liz has had this prolific career in writing, but her story is truly so much more than all the accolades that she's received or her, you know, highlight reel. Like many of us in her journey, she's also experienced heartbreaking rejection and moments in her story where she didn't exactly know how what she was doing today totally was in line with this dream that she had about her future. But here is one thing that she does have and that is a lot of pluck. So before I give too much more away, here is my conversation with the one and only Liz Gilbert. Where are you recording from? Well, on a micro level, you are joining me in my bathroom. On a macro <laughs> level, I'm in uh, Portland, Oregon. It's become my new, my new studio. Awesome. Is that the quietest place in your house? It is. I've got two tiny humans who are uh, loud, oh my and God. so this is my this is my hideaway place. So it actually started. I wrote a book that launched last year, and wrote it on maternity leave in this bathroom. So I moved my dresser into here, so I could have a standing desk. And it's handy for COVID times. I'm already like comfortable in my little bathroom office. (laughs) Uh, How are you doing? How are you? uh, How are you managing?
1: I'm fine. you know, I've had a lifetime of practice (laughs) Mm. at um, being in isolation and social distancing just from being a writer. It's not that different. Yeah, I've got this little house out in the country in rural New Jersey. So I've come out here and I'm by myself. But I've been good. I mean, apart from my heartache at The world, my own personal situation is absolutely fine. I keep telling everybody I'm the last person anyone needs to be worried about. Mm. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, it's devastating just to see the scope of the suffering and the impact for everybody else. It's definitely an interesting time.
0: I'll say, I'll say, wow. Well, let's get started. Just set the stage for us and for our listeners before the Liz that we all knew. Tell us the behind the scenes story. Where did you grow up? What was kind of your existence as a child? And specifically where did those earliest inklings that potentially maybe becoming a writer for your living would actually start to emerge if they did in your childhood?
1: Um okay, first of all, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> And thank you for having me on. And yeah, I'll give you the thumbnail. So I grew up on a small family Christmas tree farm in Northwestern Connecticut. It was a weird childhood. My parents, especially my father, are strange people. Mm. And they had, um, like, I always say I was raised by a genuine eccentric when it comes to my dad. I know that everybody thinks their dad is (laughs) weird, but my dad is very genuinely. Clinically
0: eccentric, can we say that?
1: Yeah, genuinely eccentric. And he had very strong views about how he wanted to raise his family, an environment that was all about self-reliance and resourcefulness and frugality. And um, my mother shared in those views and had, in her own way, a terror of raising children who would be dependent upon her in any way wow. whatsoever. So we were from a very early age a lot was expected of us in our own little it was a kind of almost completely self-sufficient little farm where we had goats and chickens and a garden and my mom sewed all of our clothes and we had our christmas trees and we didn't have any media in the house we didn't have any neighbors our own age so it was in a way a very isolating childhood i had one sibling my older sister Catherine, who is now also a writer, and we didn't have luxury. But the one thing that we did have was reading. Mm. Um, my dad was a really avid reader. And as a family, we would take a trip to the library once a week and we were allowed to take out like as many books as we could carry. And mm. reading was the only thing. My sister and I talked about this recently with each other. It's the only pursuit that we would be doing that my parents would not pull us away from it and put us to work if they saw us doing it. Um, and so we learned that it was literally a refuge. It was like the one thing that was respected where you are allowed to sit there and read. So very soon we both became really passionate readers. And then my sister, she had an incredible and still has an incredible imagination for storytelling and she would create our entertainment for the two of us um, because, as I said, we didn't have a TV, we didn't have neighbors. Um, so she would invent these worlds and we would live inside of those worlds. And we wrote books. Um, I, there was never a time when I wasn't writing books and she wasn't writing books. I think all little kids write books and create little books and bind them, but we we were the only kids I've ever met who like drew our author photos on the back with blurbs from the New York Times. Stop time. it. That is so good. <laughs> we were so serious. We were so serious about it. And so I can't ever remember a time where I wanted to do anything else. And there were good things, really good things about the way my parents raised me and some very insane and pathological things. But one of the very good things was that they, because of this incredible desire for us to be self-reliant, they really didn't dictate what our lives were going to be. As long as we were doing it ourselves and not asking them for any help, we were allowed to be whatever we wanted to be. And so I never had discouragement from my parents about my dream of being a writer. They were like, yeah, go do it. Don't ask us to support you. <laughs> wow. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And it's the only thing I ever intended to do.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. I feel like we could camp out here for the whole rest of the podcast. We're not going to, but there's (laughs) so much there. Talk to me about being raised by a woman who's primary goal was to have her children not need her i'm a mom i have young kids so i'm like very immersed in mom culture right now and it feels like kind of the predominant challenge that a lot of women experience in motherhood is this challenge with you know losing yourself to your children in some ways i see people almost like creating a false sense of need there's such a need to be needed uh, by their children and that's where so much like self-worth and value comes from that there's this sense of desiring your children to need you sometimes in these like artificial ways and i'm so curious about how did this experience shape and inform you and your sense of independence and your sense of interconnectedness where can you kind of see the threads of that and how did that lead to where you are today
1: well like everything because we live in a universe of paradox and i think that the definition of wisdom is being able to hold a paradox in your imagination without your mind breaking from it, right? Like, because everything is paradox (laughs) and, um, and all we want to do is have black and white simple rules, but it's all gray area and it's all paradox. So there's a positive charge and a negative charge to being raised that way. Um, the positive charge is that my mother believed that we could be capable, resourceful and independent, not just women, but girls. That we could do stuff on our own that we didn't have to be reliant. I'm talking to you right now in the middle of the COVID 19 thing, and I'm like, you know, there's a part of me that just kicks into gear where I'm like, well, I know how to take care of myself. (laughs) You know, like it's not even a question. It's like, well, yeah, I know how to chop wood. I know how to raise chickens. I know how to feed myself. I know how to, you know, I like, I'll be fine. Like I'm worried about the rest of the world, but I have this sense of just tremendous resourcefulness and resilience. The negative charge side of that is, you're on your own. Hmm. You know, I mean, that was the emotional message that was sent. So the good part of it is you're on your own and you can go do and be whatever you want in the world. The bad part of it is you're on your own. And what might be missing is a sense of being held, hmm. um, a sense that there's a safety net for you, a sense that. If you're in trouble, your family will bail you out, or help you, or show up for you. Like I've never had that sensation in my entire life. Like, and that's again, there's positive and negative things about that. When I was struggling in my 20s, there was never a question in my mind that I could go home. You know, like it just wasn't available. And part of that was very heartbreaking to just not have that cushion of feeling like somebody's got you, but the other part of it made me into who I am because I had to go figure it out in other ways.
0: Yeah. Oh, that paradox of, I often think I briefly mentioned to you before we started recording that I live in this very, very committed, very interconnected community of families where we're like, everything I have is yours, we take care of each other, we show up for one another. And that has largely led me to the sense of, I can take greater risks in my life, in my business, I'm an entrepreneur, because I have the safety net. And so that's kind of one story I've told myself. Then I'm a part of this kind of entrepreneurs group here in Portland where I live. And in order to get into the group every year, there's like a cohort that they choose. And one of their kind of like core questions that they ask business owners, to get in to the club, you know, is basically, do you have a plan B? And their whole philosophy is like, if you have a plan B, you're not one of us. Like, you have to be so sold out on this. You have no safety net. You have no plan B. You will go to the ground trying to make this work. And that's really how they've said that's the number one question in what they see and can anticipate if an entrepreneur is going to be successful or not is kind of this just like you got to make it work because there is no plan B. There is nothing else that you are (laughs) put here on earth to do. There is no (laughs) net. And so even just as we talk, I'm like mulling about this kind of paradox of like, what does it mean to not have a safety net? And can that keep us from taking risks that otherwise we might, if, if we have that soft cushion, or is it the thing that kind of propels us out into the universe in a way that maybe we wouldn't? Obviously- for you, it was the latter, uh, because you did the dang thing. Um, There was a story, and forgive me if I am i read Big Magic so long ago, but I think that there's a story that you tell that you submitted a story for inclusion in a magazine that was rejected, and it was pretty heartbreaking. And then later, you submitted the same story that was read by the same editor that was included. Am I getting that story right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you've got it right. Um, So the way that that went down was that For years, I mean, I've got a file with seven years of rejection letters um, of not getting published and not getting published and not getting published and not getting published and and just continuing to write short stories. I didn't have an agent. There was no way to crack it, Mm -hmm. you know, other than to just submit stuff blindly to magazines and what used to be called the slush pile with your self-addressed stamped envelope and your cover (laughs) letter and just keep sending them out to every place that published fiction and there used to be a, a wonderful literary magazine called Story Magazine, and I sent it a short story that I'd written called Elk Talk to them, and it was rejected, but it was on the level of rejections, it was a better rejection because it came with a little personal note at the bottom that said, um, I really liked this, from the editor saying, I really liked this, but I feel like the ending didn't really work, and um, you know, send us some other things, which to me at that point was like, huge. <laughs> I was like, somebody read it, you know, somebody read it and, <laughs> and actually had a comment about it, you know, that's amazing. Um, and then a couple of years went by and I did get a short story published in Esquire magazine out of the slush pile. And through that, I got a literary agent. Then she took over the job of sending out my stories to various magazines. And she happened without my knowledge to send that same story to that same editor at the same magazine and she published it. <laughs> she published it with a, you know, and called me up to, to talk to me and introduce herself to me. Said so I love this story so much, and you know, I knew I was having that phone call with her. And just for fun, while I was talking to her, I was holding in my hand the rejection letter from that exact same story two years prior. I never mentioned this to her because I had a great deal of respect for her, and I didn't want to be. A, Dick, sure. But, you know. <laughs> I thought it was. I just thought it was amazing that she bought the same story two years later. Um, and the really incredible thing was, in the conversation, she said to me, "There's just something about this short story that I love. It's so evocative, and I can't put my finger on what it is." that it reminds me of. And of course, what I wanted to say was it reminds you of itself (laughs) because (laughs) word for word, you know, and I couldn't help but be like, do you need me to change anything about it? Do you need me to change perhaps (laughs) the ending? You know, it's just like, no, it's perfect. (laughs) And I, and I tell that story because again, if we're going to embrace paradox, there's two ways that you could see it. One is the cynical way, which I try never to lean toward, but the cynical way says it's not what you know, it's who you know, when Liz Gilbert didn't have a fancy agent and she sent that story and it was rejected because she was a nobody. But once she had a fancy literary agent and she'd published in Esquire, suddenly they paid attention to it. And that's the unfairness of life, right? Um, The other way to look at it is you never know who you're intersecting at what moment. I don't know what kind of a mood she was in when she read it the first time. She might've just been coming back from a two martini lunch. She might've just had a fight with an in-law over the phone. You just don't know when somebody's going to see something on your desk. And I don't know what kind of a mood she was in the second time. And I don't know if the reason that she loved it the second time was because it stirred some sense of nostalgia Mm. that she couldn't identify in herself (laughs) from having read it the first time. All it meant to me is keep, pushing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep putting things in front of people. And
0: maybe even in a more woo-hoo meta way of just like what about the readers? Like maybe Who was it that exists out there in the universe that needed to hear that story that would have picked up that magazine the second time around who would have completely missed it the first time around and just like the mystery of how the world works and what people need and what you know how that intersects with what creators have to offer versus what people need the created for in this kind of mystical way.
1: I like that interpretation because I love the mystery and I'm pretty comfortable in that realm.
0: (laughs) I've been following you for years. I've read most of what you've written. It was very interesting because every single kind of overview of your career that I read started at She wrote this story, and even though she didn't get famous from it, it was very kindly received. And there was, you know, there was critical acclaim kind of on the literary level. That's not the whole story. They're starting with the success. And my gosh, this is a woman who self-proclaimed has given us a look behind the curtains into, I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and for years I submitted things and didn't even get the dignity of a response. But, you know, reading the overview of your life on the internet, even though you've told us otherwise. Mm-hmm. It starts with Liz Gilbert. She's so talented and she was immediately, you know, beloved by the literary community. i sprung um, fully formed
1: from my right? father's head like Athena coming from Zeus. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's, you know, it's, there's a lovely line that Charles Dickens says that um, a man who appears to be an overnight success has actually not been sleeping. Um, That's so good,
0: I haven't heard that before
1: Yeah, it's, you know, what you don't see are the seven years of rejection letters But what you also don't see are, you know, if we're talking about the Malcolm Gladwellian idea of 10,000 hours of practice Yeah You know, I had 10,000 hours of practice of writing creative fiction probably before I was 13 When I say that that's literally the only thing my sister and I did, I mean that's literally the only thing we did When we weren't doing farm chores, when we weren't doing our homework, we were writing stories, writing books, writing plays, and creating worlds that we lived in and fighting over who got the typewriter. I mean, that's it. You know, it was this uncountable number of hours of learning how to tell stories. Mm,
0: And you did that in an environment. I recently heard someone say, uh, refer to this philosophy as high-frequency, low-stakes And that's the pathway towards success. Do the thing with high frequency and low stakes. And it sounds like that is exactly your experience. Intensely high frequency, Mm -hmm. but the stakes were virtually nothing. There were no critics in the audience. There was no ego that needed to be soothed. You created for the sake of creating over and over and over again. And it was that high frequency, low stakes experience that seems like it also not only led you to eventual success, but cultivated... um, a deep love for the for the art of creating, regardless of how it was received, it kind of sounds like. And I wonder if you feel like that buoyed your ability to face years and years of rejection because you had cultivated a, a spirit of loving the act of creating just for the sake of creating, and not for how it was going to be received.
1: That's such a good question. I, I think the weird bubble of our family you know, nobody was like us. We were, my parents, it was such a strange house and everything about it was so not similar to the childhood of my friends. And because we didn't have neighbors, because, yeah, we were just on our own. And and in a weird way, I think it a little bit, we were a little bit like what I've heard described the way that Paul McCartney describes his relationship with John Lennon. We were trying to impress each other. Uh, So hmm. there was a sense of stakes, but the stakes were so intimate and they were so personal that, by the time I started showing my work, my writing work to the outside world, I was so far ahead of everybody. Plus the person who I was trying to impress was three years older than me and a genius. My sister's brilliant. And I was trying to keep up with her so that when I got to school and we were doing writing assignments, I was writing at such a higher level than everybody else Mm. because I'd been in practice for it. Um, And so I think that the criticism didn't frighten me because I had a sense very early on that I was ahead of people on this. Um, I got my rejections from the publishing world, but I'd had years in school where I was seen as a good writer um, within my class and by my teachers because I was trying to keep up with my sister who was a great writer and who was older than me and better than me. So there's something happening there too but I think I felt like it's gonna be very hard for anybody to catch up, <laughs> yeah yeah like you haven't been forged in this crucible of this <laughs> weird house where this is like the only thing we do, you know yeah like it's, and so I think that's that built a certain sense of confidence and it built a certain sense of a sense of distinction um I had a thirst for wanting to be published, but I didn't have a thirst where I was like, if I don't get published, I'm going to not be able to support myself financially. Because I'd been taught to not spend money, so I was really frugal, and I'd been taught to work hard, and I'd been taught to value menial labor. And that meant that I could get jobs anywhere. And I liked those jobs. So I felt like I was in a waiting game with the publishing world where, you know, they'd send me these rejection letters and I was like, that's all right. I have all the time in the world. (laughs) I'm like, I'm a really good bartender. Like I'm saving money and I'm working as a waitress and a bartender and I'm writing my stuff. And one of these days I'm going to break you people down. Like that's truly how I felt about it. I didn't feel, it kind of used to make me laugh. I remember getting a rejection letter from Harper's Magazine one time and laughing at it. I remember laughing at it but not because I thought they were stupid not to publish me but because I thought it was literally adorable that they thought I might stop. You know, like, it's so cute that you guys think I'm going to stop doing this just because you don't want it. (laughs) This isn't something I'm doing for you. This is what I do. You know, this is just what I do.
0: In the same way that your parents Said you be you. They gave you the freedom to be who you were, as long as you didn't need. As them. long as you're not relying on anybody, right? Else. You can be. Whatever In some you ways, are. Yeah. you gave that freedom to your passion. Like you gave the freedom to writing to just be what it was because you weren't wrangling it and strangling it to be everything to you of like i need you to pay my bills i need you to be my sense of fulfillment i need you you know to be my source for significant it's almost like you had this entire season of your life where you just you could let that creativity and let your writing flourish in this incredibly free environment where it could just be what it was and not what you desperately needed it to be
1: you don't make your creativity work for you meaning you don't insist that something that is as Fragile and strange and mystical and dependent upon the outside world's opinions and taste. You don't make that thing pay for your life. If you want that thing in your life, you work for it. You know, so I felt like. I was willing to be the studio wife, you know, like in all those stories about great male artists, they always have a studio wife (laughs) who does all the menial work so that the artist can be in the studio. I was willing to be my own studio wife Mm. and I was willing to be my own patron, you know, like, okay, I'll take every shift at the diner and work my ass off so that I can save up enough money so that we can go away for two weeks someplace and write. You know, like I will be that. I will be my own patron. I will be my own grant distributor. (laughs) I'll be my own sugar mommy, you know, for the creativity so that it didn't have to support me. I could support it. And that gave me, and it still gives me that sense that I have that I'm okay one way or another, that I know how to take care of myself one way or another. It still gives me a tremendous amount of freedom and it gives me a tremendous amount of creative power to be able to try stuff and do projects that are not like the last one I did and take risks. When I hear about people quitting their jobs to write a book because their dream is to become an author, my whole body recoils mm. in terror for them. <laughs> I literally get a physical response where I'm like, oh my God, no, don't do that, don't do that. Like you're making mistakes so high. You don't have to do that. You work for your book, you know, don't ask your book to work for you.
0: Okay, so you had written, you had done several things that were published, books, stories. And then, to my understanding, it was received very well, but, you know, you weren't necessarily super famous or had, like, this widespread success. And then Eat, Pray, Love happens. Eat, Pray, Love happens. You sold, I think, over, you know, 12 million copies. A major movie gets made about it. So now, at least to the outside world, the stakes are kind of high, right? Of just like, okay, well, like, what's next? Did you maintain a spirit of low stakes? How did you cultivate that? Or was there a season after Eat, Pray, Love where the stakes did feel a lot higher all of a sudden?
1: Yeah, that was the first time in my writing journey where I experienced fear, like, real, real terror of, of like, I, don't know how to do this. (laughs) Like I know how to write from a place of obscurity. Um, I know how to write from a place of assumption that nobody's going to read it. I know how to write from a place of assumption that you're not going to necessarily do well from this. I don't know how to write from a place of massive success. Like that wasn't ever in the game plan, you know, and nobody in my family or nobody I knew had ever had something like that happen to them I didn't have any playbook for that um, you know it's a champagne kind of trauma but it was a <laughs> yeah, of, it was a kind of a trauma for other reasons too like I know how to live on the salary of a waitress and a bartender but I don't know what to do with the kind of money that E-Prey love sent in like that was also really shocking and it caused me to act out with it in ways that ended up being in some ways really destructive I mean mostly it was just me giving it away like I almost couldn't allow myself to have it, so I just piled it on people, and I mean, I just went nuts because <laughs> I was like, "Get get this away from me! I don't know how to handle this." You know, so that, so there was that element as well that that needed that I didn't know how to adjust to, and I didn't have any training in. And then there was just the sense that everybody's looking at you, and there's absolutely no way you can do anything after this that will satisfy. You just can't, you know, Um, I, I mean, I was very much aware of the fact that that couldn't be replicated. It was such a, it was such an outrageous phenomenon. And the definition of a phenomenon is something that is kind of, it's once, it's a once in a lifetime phenomenon. You can't do that again. And, and I like, I like to satisfy people. So I didn't know how in the world I could satisfy anybody after that. It was a huge amount of pressure. So I wrote a book that was the follow-up to it and I wrote the first draft of it. And I remember taking it to Kinko's to print it out. And I took it home to read it, to sit down and kind of read it in paper form. And I just started to cry and cry and cry because the book wasn't good. And I knew that it wasn't good. And I didn't know why. I just knew that it's like the difference between something that's living and something that's dead. Reading that book felt like I was looking at roadkill. And I ended up sitting down and in tears sending an email to... My agent and to my editor and saying, um, I wrote the book. I'm not going to show you the book. I'm not going to show anybody the book. It's not good. You're going to have to take my word on this. And you know, I don't walk around just for fun saying that my work isn't good. Like I'm telling you, I know the difference between chicken shit and chicken salad. (laughs) (laughs) And this is chicken shit. And I don't know why. And I don't want to talk about it. And I just need to be left alone for a while. This was the main thing that I said. I have nothing to promise you. Um, I can't promise you that I'm going to give you something better in a year. I'm just telling you, this is a fail. If you need me to give back your money, I'll give it back. But I can't be beholden to anything right now because I've got no idea what to do. Um, and it was really scary. And there was a beautiful amount of trust. So grateful. My editor, Paul Slovak, You know, we had a great deal of love and respect and trust for each other. And he simply stepped back and said, okay, do what you have to do. We'll be here, you know? And and I honestly didn't didn't know at that point if I would ever write again. Wow. I, I thought that that was a real possibility that I maybe I'm done. Maybe Eat, Pray, Love was the book that I did all those years of training and all those years of work in order to become the person who could write that book and maybe my work here is finished. And then I just decided to do something else, to do something... It was the opposite of writing. So I just started gardening. We'd moved to a house that had a lot of land and I was like, I, I'm just going to plant trees and I'm gonna garden and i work in the soil all day. And it wasn't like I'm going to do that for a while and go back to writing. It's like, this is the only thing I can think of to do <laughs> is to create something in a more literal way. And I ended up doing that for a year. And I think I really just gave myself permission for possibly my whole writing journey to be over. At the end of that growing season, I remember I was putting the asparagus beds to sleep for the season and the leaves were coming off the trees. And all of a sudden I had an idea for what the first sentence of that book could be if I rewrote it. And it became the book committed that was the, the poor book that had to be the book that came after Reprayless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it was it was as good a book as it could be. You know, I have a great fondness in my heart for that book because it broke the spell. Something had to get out there and break the spell. And after that, I published that book, I felt like I was free again.
0: Wow. There's this tiny little weird book. And I read it when I was uh, living in East Africa. I just graduated from college. I was starting up this company. And I think I disagreed with it a lot when I read it. But the whole kind of concept is about attachment. And in order to fully, fully love something, you have to be in a place where you don't need anything from it. Mm -hmm. And that spirit around what you just described feels like that philosophy of like, I had to let it go. I had to release it in order for it to, to come back um, and maybe to trust me. I don't know. Maybe that sounds really woohoo, but maybe there's something about that. that, um, like your creativity needed that space in order to trust you as a steward of what it had to offer the world in a way that just feels very, I don't know, kind of magical yeah, to me. Such
1: a beautiful thing to say. And I definitely felt like I'm so glad that I didn't white knuckle down, send that manuscript to my editor, try and force it to work, you know, and, and be like, this book is due and i've got to do, you know it, i think maybe it was also the 30 years of time that i've spent with writing that made me be able to know in my gut in a really intuitive way this book cannot be saved you know like this is a stillborn book you cannot resuscitate this it just you just have to let it go
0: man this is making my, my brain is going a million miles a minute because i'm thinking on the other side of you know as an entrepreneur I've white knuckled so many things and I look back on it and it's the things that I did refuse to give up that I said people are telling me it's impossible, but I'm not going to let go that were the things that I ended up cherishing the most, I guess. And I've recently had some things kind of in another part of my career Take off in a way that I just didn't really intend and I didn't really work for it and it's come so easily and it seems like there's such a demand for it and I'm grateful for it. But I find a little bit Liz this sense of uh, like if I have two babies <laughs> like if I have two kids like I'm starting to favor the kid that I fought for mm. that was like no everything that happened happened because I white knuckled it and because I didn't give up on you. And because, you know, it's like this very like fierce thing. And this other baby that just seems to kind of like, you know, be kind of successful when she like partly shows up, I'm grateful for, but I don't have this like tenderness and affection and connection. And maybe that's, maybe this is just one of the paradoxes of like, maybe what it looks like to let go and what it looks like to white knuckle something for each of us might be different.
1: My reaction to that is something that a really great teacher said to me once, which is, how about trusting the only navigational system that is entirely and truly your own? And that is intuition, right? So your intuition and my intuition are different intuitions, but Mm -hmm. they're the same operating system. And so what I hear when you dug in and white-knuckled through and insisted and refused to quit, you were being driven by an intuitive sense that that's what you were supposed to be doing, mm. you know? Just as when I quit on that memoir because I knew that that book was stillborn and that there was no resuscitating it, I was following a deep intuitive sense that told me it's time to walk away, you know? Um, So I think what we all want is we want something from the exterior world to tell us when do I dig in and when do Mm. I quit and the problem Mm -hmm. is that's not where the answer is going to come from (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: unfortunately we have to all figure that out on our own
0: (laughs) without even asking which is why I knew I was going to love this interview Liz you shared with us kind of this you know a failure you spent all of this time writing this book and got to the end of it and it wasn't what you wanted it to be and you and you had to lay it down I want to get a little bit maybe more nuanced beyond failure and talk about mistakes. I just finished, or several weeks ago, I finished reading The City of Girls. If you haven't read it, you guys, you have to read it because it's just, it felt like it was so new. And I loved that it was set in so much nostalgia and it was so old at the same time. It was one of my favorite things about this book. But kind of there's this pivot moment in this book where a mistake is made. The main character plucks up, right?
1: Um,
0: <laughs> big time. And there's this other there's <laughs> big time. She has this big time pluck up. Now, what I love about it is that she's been living a life up until this point that a lot of other people would say she's been mm-hmm. plucking up, right? From the external, like she's been making mistake after mistake. She doesn't see it as a mistake. And in her own internal compass, it's not a mistake. And then she does this thing that she would qualify as a mistake Talk to us about how do you, or maybe how does your character, how does Vivian, but then maybe you through Vivian, how do you define a mistake? Why was this moment in her story such a grave mistake that she could look back on and say, like, I will never be able to fix that?
1: (laughs) So this is a book that's a lot about sexual shame, and it's a lot about female sexual shame, particularly. And for years, I wanted to write a book about female promiscuity, and I wanted to write it from the angle of girls behaving badly, but not having their lives destroyed by it because so many of the stories that we read in Western literature are about the ruined woman. You know, the ruined woman is a trope, it's a cliche and it makes for a very, very good story. They're extremely dramatic. Some of the best stories are told were stories of the ruined woman, just a, a woman who made an error in terms of sex or sensuality and one false move and your life is ruined and you're under the wheels of the train, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and, and the stakes are very, very high. And traditionally the stakes have been very high for women that there's a narrow path that's considered to be respectable. And if you veer outside of that path, everything can be lost. You know, that's one way to look at women's lives. There's another way to look at women's lives, which is we can survive our mistakes. And I like to say, if women were not capable of surviving the terrible, terrible misjudgments that we make in terms of sex and love and romance, there would scarcely be a woman left alive in the world yeah. <laughs> because we've all made really big mistakes. And what what I think of as a big mistake is Consequences that reach beyond you into causing pain to somebody else, particularly to an innocent party. That's the stuff that I think is very hard to forgive yourself for. Mm. Um, and, and that's the mistake that my character Vivian makes in this book is. Up until then, she's been sort of hop skipping through life. She's been on a promiscuity bender. She's been on a a party bender. She's fallen in with this group of showgirls and dancers and playboys in New York City in the theater world in the 1940s. It's all very frivolous, very frothy, and they're sort of skipping lightly across the world as though nothing can touch them. And then she goes too far and she ends up hurting somebody who she. Respects and loves a very great deal because of her self absorption and her youth. And, you know, this is, you know, every, they say every memoir is a novel and every novel is a memoir. So, this is a novel (laughs) that, you know, I draw on from my own life of having done that. And, and it's the hardest thing in the world to forgive yourself for is, I find, is causing pain to somebody else because of your own selfish or reckless actions. Yeah.
0: Oh, it was so good, Liz. It was just so refreshing. I feel like in literature and thought in, you know, every guru of the day, you have people that are constantly, constantly, everything is a mistake and you need to be sorry for everything. Or on the other side of it is like, there is no such thing as Mm -hmm. mistake, right? Like we just have to, everything is fine and it's up to you to decide. And that just leaves me in such want of the, what feels like the truest, middle ground that that there can be such thing as mistake Mm. Um, also we don't need to be defined by that i loved aunt peg had this moment right after you know when she's like talking about this mistake where she said it's good to be sorry And then she follows it up with, just don't make a fetish of it. Don't make a fetish There you go. There you go. That's it. Like, (laughs) that feels like the both and that I've been waiting for of like, yes, we can hurt people. And we have to acknowledge it and open our hearts and attempt reconciliation. And that's one of the most vulnerable acts of courage that a human can do, I think, is to say, I... Plucked up, yeah. right? Like I hurt you, and I'm sorry. I think the words "Will you forgive me?" is the most vulnerable, brave question of handing away your power. I don't think we become fully human until we experience
1: that. And another thing that you can become is more compassionate to mm. to people who've made tremendous mistakes that they feel they can never be redeemed from. You know, there's something about mercy. The word mercy comes to mind. Forgiveness is um, can be very patronizing. Um, If somebody asks you to forgive them and you decide to forgive them, it's you kind of up above them (laughs) saying like, even though you're not worthy, I'm going to reach down into the mud and forgive you, right? And when you go begging for forgiveness from another person, it doesn't just feel like you're kneeling in the mud and they're up in a higher place. But mercy is something where I feel like two people are standing in their shared pain of their shared human karmic dilemma and the difficulty of being a person and they're recognizing each other's situation and saying, yeah, I. I've been in that too in my own way and I know how hard it is and I wish you well, you know, like that's mercy. And I think having made mistakes that you cannot fix is an invitation for you to expand your own capacity for mercy for other people who've made mistakes that they cannot fix.
0: I love that so much. Liz, I could literally just quarantine podcast with you forever. (laughs) Um, This was, that is so good. And I really appreciate you and your time. And I hope that, um, if anybody is going to survive the apocalypse of uh, COVID nineteen, I have my bets on you—the <laughs> wood chopping survivalist, Christmas
1: tree farm uh,
0: creative. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping putting... to.
1: I'm hoping to help save a few people too along the way. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but thank you so much, honey. and take care. Be well, and um, and be gentle with you, and be gentle with others. Thanks,
0: Liz. Appreciate you. We hope you all liked today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our new baby podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing publisher, Baker Publishing Group, and by my amazing producers over at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit lizbohannon.co or follow us on Instagram at lizbohannon or Human Media on Twitter that's all guys. We will catch you again in the next episode. Until then, stay plucky.